The talk tonight is about comparing, compassion, and gratefulness. Uh, There's a beautiful saying uh, that teaches us uh, to beware of comparing, of measuring ourselves, of trying to figure out where we are. We're not above, we're below. We're not ahead, we're behind. Like a brush in the painter's hand, we have no idea where we are. So if we can relate to our experience like that, when we start judging, measuring, Uh, trying to fathom where we are, to have that sense that we're a brush in the painter's hand. The practice is actually quite fathomless, uh, but the more we practice, the more we tend to want to know where we are. Uh, We've all heard the saying, don't know mind. Sometimes it's helpful when we're doing a lot of wondering about our practice or trying to assess it. It's helpful to just remember that simple, don't know mind. Um, The other side of this is that as we do the practice, we see our striving, our ambition much more clearly. We're meant to see it. It's important to see it. If we want to be free, Uh, then we'll start seeing these self-assessment tapes. And that's, it's so beautiful to just be able to say, oh, self-assessment tape number 5,000, self-assessment tape number 2,221. The really important aspect of this is when the self-assessment starts getting into cruelty. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, this in the first part of the talk, how this relates to the Buddha's teaching on conceit. And in the, um, the Western modality, conceit is usually considered arrogance. But in the Buddha's teaching, he considered conceit any aspect of comparison or self-referencing. Uh, So he considered it to be, I am better than, I am worse than, and I am equal to. Now this is pretty all-encompassing. You know, even if you sit in this hall and hope for being equal to, one would never guess that that would have an aspect of conceit. Uh, But certainly we get to see um, this range of experience. And if you look closely, it's all based on a separate self comparing it to another self, another separate self, another separate self. So the Buddha taught that any comparison is madness. That the truth is that there isn't this separation. There was one retreat where I was just noticing the different kinds of thoughts that were going through my mind, and I started going, oh, Michelle on the podium, Michelle the oracle, (laughs) Michelle in the courtroom, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And you know, the courtroom scenes, you know, making a case for my worthlessness or making a case for my specialness. And you know, I don't often make a case for my equalness. But if you look closely, I felt like I started discovering this fear of mediocrity in that retreat. You know, when I started working with that range of conceit that is, you know, what we usually think of as wanting to be special or believing we're, you know, at the top or or progressing even. 
and then that shift to worthlessness. Uh, recently, a friend and I were discussing this, and then, you know, we started talking about something else. And we were walking into this place that I'm staying, and he decided to tease me, but I didn't know it. And he caught me off guard. And he said, oh, Michelle, you're just a run-of-the-mill meditation teacher. And I, it was like, I, you know, I didn't act like I was like, upset. <laughs> I was like, in my head I went, run-of-the-mill, you know, just, I was just, he just caught me off guard. I was, and then he, I was like, run-of-the-mill, and he started laughing. You know, he's like, oh, that's, uh-huh, caught you. <laughs> that's conceit. <laughs> you know, so for those of you who dread more than anything being mediocre or run-of-the-mill, this is this, I am equal, I am worse than, I am better than. I think so much of our cruelty that we experience toward ourselves and others is often when we're caught in perfectionism. Uh, and in, in a lot of my practice, um, it was like a growing ability to really face and hear uh, the cruel thoughts uh, so that the transformation into compassion, kindness, um, doesn't come through hiding from it or being indifferent from it, but actually being able to see them so clearly, one doesn't believe them anymore. And as you go through that process, you know, there's a little more safety to see more of them, a little more safety to see more of them. One way that I describe that process is throwing away the whip. Uh, and this might sound a little bit extreme, but when I first started no noticing how cruel I could be based on this desire to be perfect, you know, I would just feel like my practice wasn't deep enough. I would just keep wanting it to be better. You know, it was never good enough. Uh, and I wouldn't see that when I would have that thought, it's not deep enough if I believed it, that I was going to start beating myself up. Uh, so at a, at a certain point of time, I decided the only way that I would start to get it is if I exaggerated it. So I actually would pretend to pick up a whip, bleat myself until I was bloody. Uh, and that's the only way I could get it. And when I would finally see, oh my, I don't want to do this to myself anymore. I'd put down the whip. You know, so it takes this ability to face what we're doing by believing these thoughts. It's not that noble. <laughs> you know, we can be raised to feel like we should be so perfect and such martyrs, but it's very destructive. And the more we believe those kind of thoughts about ourselves, we're usually also measuring other people by the same standards. And it's really horrific. You know, we often don't use the word cruelty that much for ourselves or others. But if you just, again, had somebody's mind broadcast over a loudspeaker, you know, no one would volunteer because you would hear that range from, you know, <laughs> hearing oneself be really special <laughs> and the best yogi ever, you know, and everyone else, of course, falls down, right? If you're on the top, everyone else is sort of down below us, you know, and then it's so easily we're on the bottom and we're looking up to the top. Anything you can do to throw away the whip is essential. And it's all so much based on comparison. And comparison is madness. In terms of this um, 
kind of kind of blathering self-judgment, you know, this kind of continual, almost continual comparing ourselves with the last five minutes. You know, we compare our sitting with the last sitting, and we compare our walking to the last walking. And then I love that way in which we try to figure out, well, if I ate a little less, you know what I, you know, you, you, we do all this manipulation in our head. Well, I walked over in this spot at this walking, and it was really good. So, it, you know, we try to find this routine that's going to make it that good again. You know, it's, it's just, it's amazing how vulnerable we are and how much we want to control. Of course, if we can see the thoughts clearly, if we can see that they're just thoughts, that we don't have to believe them, we don't even have to get involved with throwing away the whip. But it's not always that we have that kind of clarity. So yes, if we see a thought like, I'm not deep enough, or I'm not working hard enough, or it's, I'm not good enough, or you know, whatever we're doing that we're not measuring up, um, if we just see them for what they are, you know, we're not perturbable. We're not oppressed by the assessment or the judgment. There are times when the mind can get very quiet, and just knowing anything can be so painful. And then we're not as vulnerable to wanting to know where we are or how we're doing. You know, it just hurts to want to believe anything about anything. You know, and even the, the, like that seduction of trying to figure out everything. It's like, as you go along in practice, you know, you think you've got it all figured. And then two days later, it's out the window. And then, you know, you can see how we'll like get it all figured out again. And, and then two days later, it's gone again. And hopefully that's true for you. Because if we think we know, we're not going to explore. And that, you know, that, that description of mindfulness is beginning this, this spring-like quality of beginner's mind or don't know mind to understand that that's the greatest wisdom, to not know and to be willing to not know, that humility to be willing to not know, and to willing to not know. And, I mean, I look back over some of the ways that I would practice, um, and I would pull out some kind of saying to help me get through a walking period, or I would pull out some kind of wise, pithy statement to help me get through a sitting. You know, that's fine. And that'll keep changing. It's like anything we need to do to keep inspired isn't what I'm talking about. But you'll also see that those little crutches that we use to kind of help us stay with it and to stay inspired will change as well. They won't last. You know, we'll need new inspiration. There's a poem by Pablo Neruda about um, measuring that I like. It's called Ode to Age. He said, I don't believe in age. All old people carry in their eyes a child, and children at times observe us with the eyes of wise ancients. Shall we measure life in meters or kilometers or months. How far since you were born? How long must you wander until, like all men, instead of walking on its surface, we rest below the earth? To the man, to the woman who utilized their energies, goodness, strength, anger, love, tenderness, to those who truly alive flowered and in their sensuality matured, 
Let us not apply the measure of a time that may be something else, a mineral mantle, a solar bird, a flower, something, maybe, but not a measure. Time, metal or bird, long, petiolate flower, stretched through man's life, shower him with blossoms and with bright water or with hidden sun. I proclaim you road, not shroud, a pristine ladder with treads of air, a suit lovingly renewed through springtimes around the world. Now, time, I roll you up. I deposit you in my bait box, and I am off to fish with your long line, the fishes of the dawn. To see the child and the ancient one in ourselves is not to measure ourselves. Wise being, innocent being. Now, so much of the practice is bringing those two together, the child's open heart and the wisdom. So beware of comparison. Beware of measuring. Mindfulness, or this don't-know-mind, or beginners-not-mind, an initial part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering. It's just remembering to be here. It's that simple, remembering to be here, remembering to be here. And that ability to remember and come back to what's what's happening in the present moment uh, gives us two things. And it would be great if it only gave us one. And the first thing it gives us is the present moment. It gives us our life. And it would be great if that was enough. Um, But it's giving us more than that. So that moment of mindfulness gives us our life. It gives us the present moment. It gets us out of the prison of the past or the future. And it also plants a seed for another moment of mindfulness to happen. And the, the thing that is hard for us is that we can't control that. We can't control when another moment of remembering will happen. And you can see that. You can see that you'll be really there And then the next minute or (laughs) next second, you'll be lost in in a thought. And then you can see, oh, at some point, we remember to be mindful again. So that next time that we remember to be mindful is, is conditioned by that other moment where we remembered to be mindful. It's just that we can't control it. So each time you remember to be here is planting a seed for another moment to be here. Another moment to be here is planting another seed for another moment to be here. So it's an extraordinary paradox, you know, that we're getting the present moment, we're getting our life. It's planting a seed for another one of those moments, and we can't control it. You know, so that takes a lot of trust. And we start understanding this the more we practice. We have more and more faith in that process, and we're able to let go of control because we see we can't control it. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I mean, I just think that it's so amazing that that's how it happens. There's a Sayadaw in Burma Ujodaka, uh, that wrote a book, um, Snow in Summer. Uh, And remember, as you hear this, that mindfulness is the intention to understand 
rather than to judge. He said, I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I am not perfect. So I am scared of those who are judgmental. I want to be left alone. I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. It's impossible not to have done anything unwholesome. I am trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. Just that deep acceptance of his imperfection and that gratitude for understanding that that's all we can do. I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I'm not perfect, so I'm scared of those who are judgmental. Admitting it. None of us like to be judged. I'm trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. Do you feel that way right now? It comes from knowing that we're intending to understand rather than to judge, to control, to measure, to compare. Insight um, helps us to understand that I am not my body. I am not my breath. I am not my thoughts. I am not my emotions. I'm not my mind. I'm not my heart. You know, starting to see that there's nothing to hold on to uh, comes from these understandings. I'm not my thoughts, not my body, not my emotion, not my heart, not my mind. It's like that's the beginning of contentment, to start to really get that. In a movie called um, Almost Famous, there is a line that I really loved. um, And this man said, the only real currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with people when you are uncool. (laughs) I'll repeat it. The only real currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with people when you are uncool. So I'm going to be uncool. (laughs) Um, The dining room is such an interesting place. (laughs) Um, You know, it could be such a temple of quiet and gratitude, you know, but it's, I used to relate to it like walking into a beehive. I used to keep bees, and, you know, if you don't want to get stung, you kind of put on the suit, and then you have this smoker, and you kind of smoke the bees until they get calm, and it's almost like you want to walk through the dining room <laughs> like with a, a suit, you know, and smoke it, you know, because it's just so intense in there, you know. And what is it? What is just, it's the most intense thing to go through the dining room and get your food and sit down and eat, you know. Um, so I wanted to share some of my own trips around food just to kind of give you a sense of why it can be intense in there. Of course, you've already figured it out yourself, but I wanted to share a little bit. Um, Before my father split, 
um, almost completely. Um, I was about five, and I remember this really vividly. He came in the kitchen, and I was standing there, and he said, you're going to have a weight problem when you grow up. <laughs> five, you know, I was five. You're going to have a weight problem when you grow up. <laughs> and I, even then I thought, <laughs> you, know, you know, swearing was normal in my family. And I actually thought, damn, you know, like, <laughs> what's he? And then I even thought, you know, I think it's him that has the weight <laughs> problem. <laughs> Not me, but you know how easily we get affected by stuff. And, you know, it's just like it went in my heart somewhere, but I, you know, let it go and didn't really think about it. And then my mom died when I was 13. And after that, um, not that things were normal in the household around food anyway, um, uh, but we can skip that. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to save that for another time. Um, so I started sneaking food to myself. You know, like I would sneak food as a way to soothe myself, but I didn't know I was doing it. Um, you know, this movement. You know that movement where you go up to the cabinet and you get some food out and you go, you know. But you don't really want to admit to yourself that you're doing it, right? You know, and but so that happened, and I gained quite a bit of weight. So I had the weight problem that my father told me I was going to have. And you know, in high school, that's really humiliating and hard. And um, so then, you know, I lost it, and to come back, and I lost it, and come back, and then I came on my first retreat. To make a long story short. And I was so happy and during that retreat that this issue didn't come up. It was like, th because everything was kind of controlled and scheduled, and it was the first time in my life since I was 13 that like, I didn't have this trip around needing the food for comfort, and it disappeared. And I thought, it's gone. You know, like I thought this was it. I was through with this pattern. Oh boy. You know, and, and it was really good for me for this pattern to disappear through the renunciation. You know, and I did think it was gone. I thought I was free of it. And then I went back out. It was a two week retreat. I came back out in the world and it was almost worse. You know, it's like, a, you know how you get out and you're like, oh boy, I can have whatever I want. You know? <laughs> Chocolate chip cookie. I mean, you know, it was just like I just started eating, like, whoa, boy. And plus, you don't have to be mindful, right? You know? <laughs> I was just like, oh boy, I don't have to be mindful of eating. You know, it was great. And then it didn't, obviously, the pattern didn't go away. And then I came on staff and did a staff retreat. Was that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was that retreat, all right. Um, I thought that the pattern was going to go away again on the next retreat. Uh, and it just so happened, this was a staff retreat, and I had to go to Amherst um, for something during the retreat. And I decided to buy chocolate for everybody on staff plus the teachers, and Joseph loves chocolate, so I bought an extra big bunch for Joseph. And I came back to my room. <laughs> I also have an iron stomach, by the way. <laughs> I can eat a lot. Um, so, believe it or not, I got back to my room with this huge bag of chocolate, and I knew I was going to eat it all. <laughs> In that particular moment, it wasn't like I was going to save any. So I sat down, and, <laughs> and I decided, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be mindful. <laughs> really, I did. I made a deal. It was like, if you're going to do this, um, I accepted that I was going to do it. And this was really, it was revolutionary for me to instead of not like to eat it, but to almost sneak it for myself, like to, like that instead of doing that, I just decided acceptance. It's like this white flag went up. And I just, I 
know I'm going to do this. It's really painful, but it's going to be pleasurable, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> I know it's painful, but it's going to be great. So I decided to just explore it. And it was really pure exploration. It was, I'm not kidding. It was this really wonderful moment where I decided to make this deal, and it was real. It was a real deal. Um, and it was so interesting. I, was, I would note re- lifting, reaching, <laughs> excitement, touching, lifting, 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 seeing. Anticipation. <laughs> I really, this took like hours. I was really into it, you know. <laughs> Opening, sweet, sweet, happy, happy, sweet, sweet, <laughs> pleasurable, pleasure. I mean, it was just amazing. And then it was gone. I mean, it was just over. And it was like seeing, wanting, and just that craving. I would watch, really allow the craving, and then reaching, reaching, reaching. And it was just like, over and over and over. It was incredible. It was like a couple hours. I ate it all. (laughs) You know, and it was just, um, and I actually thought nothing happened except that, you know, I stayed up for hours, you know. (laughs) I mean, I kind of went out for a walk, and it was kind of nice, and it's that, but it was like that happened, the retreat went on, and I didn't really think much of it. And then when I came out back into my, you know, worldly life, there was a point where I was anxious, which is what, that's when I started to get the relationship. I had anxiety. I went to eat. And instead of going, I hate myself for doing this, kind of sneaking it, I went, oh, I felt compassion. I started to even explore it more. It's like I started to feel like, oh, I must be eating this because I'm anxious. And instead of hating it or not wanting to be with it, I would, I, but I wouldn't stop the pattern. I'd allow it. I'd sit down. And I'd just watch the anxiousness. I'd watch the sweetnessness. The sweetness kind of eliminate it for a while, kind of put it away. Um, and this went on for some years. It was like I just, whenever I would let that happen, it would happen. Um, and it was just so, again, so revolutionary. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm free with this pattern totally. What I feel like I learned was that there have been times in my life, especially if there's a lot of dukkha, you know, and there's a lot of ang- anxiety or tension around something, that that pattern will appear. And instead of judging it, instead of needing to do anything about it, I'll just be mindful. Let it be. Let it come and go by itself. Um, And I want to say that both experiences of the pattern being more hidden, the renunciation covering it, was really helpful. And the pattern being really obvious and me just allowing it was really helpful. Both were helpful. And... um, For me, this experience with the pleasure, the enjoyment, the craving, taught me so much about being with craving and wanting. So that instead of having this feeling like it's bad or wrong, that we can explore it, that we can allow it, that it isn't personal. And just like the other night I described how to work with aversion, that it's really the not liking the unpleasant, that's the problem. It's really the not exploring the enjoyment, the not, the not exploring the craving, that's the problem. Believing it. Um, so say, you know, say it's with a, instead of a chocolate, it's with a sitting, or with a person. You know, it can get much more confusing even than when it's around food. If you can explore what happens with you with enjoyment, craving, with food, one can start exploring it with more difficult things. And how this relates to gratitude can be really interesting. Um, you know, it's, you can see this with so many things, but I can get, just give you again a little example. Being with my um, family recently, my, the, 
the kids um, I raised when they were little. Uh, and there was a point where we were all together. We hadn't been together for a long time. They were expressing gratitude to me for what happened um, in the past. And I drove away. And I started to feel this, um, first it was this fullness, this contentment, and then it started shifting into wanting and missing. Um, And then I missed it. I didn't allow that experience of the wanting, and it started to become painful. And I started to explore it again, and I could see, oh, if I buy into this wanting, I'm going to suffer. If I can allow this, I can feel grateful. You know, so I see that this possibility of noticing the enjoyment, noticing the craving or wanting, and seeing that we can allow this process to the point where we can feel grateful. An easy place to see this is with the leaves. You know, how achingly beautiful the colors are. You know, and it's like the last few weeks, it's like there have been these waves of the reds and then the golds. And then, you know, today, it was snowing. You know, I mean, you know, (laughs) that's like a big change. And, uh, I mean, it's probably going to be next May before it really warms up again, right? I mean, you know, that's (laughs) that's a long time. Uh, And uh, how do we work with this? I mean, every time I go through this last, these weeks of these colors, there's always this point of just this sadness and wanting it to last longer. And if we get caught in wanting it to last longer, and we really believe it, we won't shift to the gratitude for how beautiful it is. I'm not saying that you skip the wanting. Yeah, I'm not saying that you skip the enjoyment. It's that you allow the beauty, you allow yourself to connect with it. And then, of course, we'll want it, But do we have to believe it? Do we have to get stuck there? So the end of suffering is being able to be able to be mindful of this craving. If you can do it with things like the leaves (laughs) or with something sweet that you have, you know, maybe you like salty rather than sweet. Maybe it's miso you get hooked into instead of chocolate. You know, it doesn't matter. It could be apricots or who knows, but, you know, we all have something on our tongue (laughs) that gets into something pleasant. If you practice this with food or you practice it with um, a memory of a person, then when we get into wanting enlightenment, it's, you know, it starts to be getting more workable, you know, because that's what we're going to fall for more than anything. I mean, look at how we suffer over this deep desire to be free and then this craving for this experience that isn't even an experience. You know, there's nothing there. You know, that's what's so funny. <laughs> I mean, we, we crave, like, something we don't even know what it is, and it's like nothing. You know, I mean, that's... That's what's so funny about us human beings. <laughs> you know, what we're craving is really to be here. What we're craving, again, is to, to have this freedom to be where we are, and to be where we are, and to be where we are. And the route through is through the wanting. The route through is through the not wanting. When I finally started to get that you know, you get here through going through wherever you are, and you go through wherever you are, and that that's the freedom. You know, there's a lot of gratitude, joy. Comparing kills joy. Comparing kills gratitude. I was listening to a um, Dharma talk that Christina Feldman was giving during a woman's course I taught with her this spring, and she said something that just cracked me up. She said, um, do you think that the Buddha 
I didn't even say it. Do, do you think that the Buddha worried that he had fat thighs? <laughs> I mean, it's like we go in the dining room and we have all these trips around food and how we look in relationship to the food or, you know, we look in the mirrors and we have all this comparison of how we look and it's like it's just such suffering. But it is a really interesting question, you know. Do you think he really worried about having fat thighs? Probably not. <laughs> Comparison. Madness. There are many ways that we can look at how we compare, so I'm going through different angles, you know, to how it kills joy or kills gratitude. Um, as my father got older, and he was so um, tough and so, you know, just so little, I mean, so far from any kind of kindness toward himself. Um, so I never received from him, you know, a sense of that he really loved me or, you know, that he had at that capacity. Um, um, but that because of his lack of self-care and self-love, you know, that, that kind of sent down a chain through the generations that I wasn't worth love and that I was unlovable. You know, it was just this, such a tragic, uh, painful, like I say, generational pattern. And then the fear of being unlovable. Um, and then my dad got this cat, like toward the end of his life. Um, and he started treating this cat like I wanted him to treat me. And I would go to the house where he lived, and you know he'd be like, you want some food, honey? You know, like, I'll get you some food. And I'd be like, <laughs> jealous of this cat, you know? And it was so painful. It was just like, I didn't want to be jealous of his cat, you know? And, but here it was, just like, oh, I just, oh, it was so painful. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of wanted to just lay on the floor like, <laughs> 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 if I act like a cat, <laughs> will you be nice to me? You know. <laughs> and it really, I had to look at this, just like, what is jealousy? You know, and it, again, jealousy is really painful, but jealousy is just comparing ourselves with another and feeling unlovable, feeling like we're not good enough. And this was such a teaching. It was almost like I didn't want to go visit him anymore once he got the cat because <laughs> I had to face this jealousy. You know, and I mean, it's hard to, like, again, we can have this judge. It's like when Michelle, the lawyer, was in her mind, you know, and I could, how can you, how can you feel good about being jealous about a cat? You know, I mean, it was very easy for me to judge myself. Uh, and that's what was happening. What was wonderful, and that what I feel really grateful for, is that I had the practice, and it helped me understand the experience of jealousy. Like, I could welcome it as a road, like the road rather than the shroud, as, um, as uh, Neruda says. It's like taking it as a vehicle, to understand, and it would be a vehicle to me having the courage to feel unlovable. I mean, can we really connect with the experience of feeling unlovable? And that was a, that was a fear of mine that was so deep that once I started being able to be there for myself with that experience, there was so much gratitude. 
I don't have to be afraid of that. I don't have to believe it. I'm not sure all of you have heard of um, George Jackson. Um, but he's a great man that had been um, in prison for 10 years. He was um, killed by a prison guard in an Attica prison riot, and he had spent seven years in solitary. And a great, great writer, he wrote from Soul Dad Brother, The Prison Letters of George Jackson. And this is from this um, book he wrote. But the significant feature of the desperate man reveals itself when he meets other desperate men directly or vicariously and he experiences his first kindness. Someone to strain with him, to strain to see him as he strains to see himself. Someone to understand, someone to accept the regard, the love that desperation forces into hiding. Those feelings that find no expression in desperate times store themselves up in great abundance, ripen, strengthen, and strain the walls of their repository to the utmost. Where the kindred spirit touches this wall, it crumbles. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than the desperate man. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than the desperate man. When are we kind to ourselves? How do we learn kindness to ourselves? You know, how do we learn compassion to ourselves? You know, it's usually when we see the cruelty of ourself, you know, we finally face it. There's a kind of out of that, that utter desperation that we're willing to change, that we'll be kind. Or we'll be aware that somebody is kind to us. If we just reflect on the kindness that's shown to us in our life, and how that gave meaning to life, and how that really got us through life, you know, that, that that's what that's all about. The Buddha described this kindness or compassion, um, you know, as the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. You know, so it's the willingness to really face the suffering, to care about it. Um, that's a lot of our practice. That's what we're doing here. And the Buddha described the proximate cause of the arising of compassion as facing helplessness. Facing the helplessness that we have in the face of suffering. And, you know, that's quite an amazing statement and something really to reflect on in terms of ourselves and our relationship to kindness or our relationship to kindness to others or ourselves, that it, it's really getting that sense that, you know, we face the helplessness and then we care about it. You know, that's the desperation that George Jackson was talking about. And when sees these beings that were in prison, Nelson Mandela, I mean, I read in the newspaper some months ago when he had his... Um, 85th birthday party uh, that Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, said to him at this party, thank you, Nelson. Thank you for teaching us how to forgive. You know, how, how, does, how, does, how did he get to that? Well, you can just imagine after many years in prison, how Nelson Mandela got there. 
It's through this process. It's through this process of seeing how we can be cruel to others and ourselves and transforming it into this kindness and care. You know, so every time you do this, you might think, it's like when I had that experience with the chocolate, I really didn't think much happened, and it was probably one of the most transforming experiences in my life. I got it. I got that by being mindful that the pattern would, you know, would heal. That I didn't have to get rid of the pattern, that I just had to face it with this intention to understand rather than to judge. The intention to understand rather than to judge. You know, you can't understand that enough. That is the kindness. That is the path. That's the road. This spring, when I was teaching here, um, there's a series of courses I teach, and by the end, I get kind of tired, and often I get busy. Um, And you know how you can have this intention to be really careful when you go in the shower to remove any insects, you know, so that they don't drown. You know, I think that as you do enough retreats, you get enough mindfulness to remember to look in the bathtub or the shower and, you know, take any daddy long legs or, you know, earwig or whatever, you, you remove it. And, but then you go back out into your life and you get busy, and it kind of feels like a hassle, right? you're in a hurry and but you make you have that intention not to harm and you remove the insect and that's been a a practice of mine for many years okay so I was in a hurry really big hurry to take this shower I looked in I didn't see anything I'm like in the shower lathering up and um, this really big spider like somehow lands in the shower and I was so surprised, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, you know, in a hurry, you know, what do I do? I'm all full of soap. Um, and so I, <laughs> I mean, this is really like stupid. I got this razor, you know, my razor, and I thought I'd make a bridge, you know, <laughs> like, right, Miss, Miss Engineer Michelle, like I get, I make a bridge so that the spider's not going to drown. And I, <laughs> so I'm assuming that the spider's going to do it. I mean, this was the arrogance, right? You know, <laughs> assuming that the spider was going to cooperate with my engineering feet. So I put the razor down, and I'm like, then I continue lathering my hair, and it's like the spider isn't cooperating. And I'm like, I was really mad at the spider. I'm like, stupid spider, what's wrong with you? And then when I had that thought, this, all this shampoo kind of went over and fell on top of the spider. <laughs> and it like looked like, I mean, it drowned. And so I was really upset. And I was so mad at myself. And I was just like so cruel. I was just so upset. And I had to go out that night. And the whole night, I was upset about the spider. You know, I felt really bad and that I'd really, I killed it and I was a horrible person. And um, so I, but I had <laughs> put the spider up on the edge of the bathtub. Um, so I got in around midnight and I, I came in and the spider was alive. You know, it was just like. <laughs> <laughs> And then I was, I was mad because I had ruined my evening. <laughs> Over like, and you know, I just—it was so funny. I just sort of sat down on the, you know, the floor of the bathroom, just looking at the spider, just being in awe. 
of this process, just, just to watch how I could get so strung out about the spider. But we care. It's like we grow fond. You know, it's out of this heart that starts feeling connected that we do care. And then we do the best we can. And sometimes it isn't good enough. I mean, I was, it was a very interesting experience for me to go through that with the spider and then to see how it seemed like it had nine lives. Um, self-forgiveness, Miyoshin had talked about it, um, forgiveness of others. It's all an aspect of kindness and compassion leading to gratitude. Years ago when I was sitting here, I found a a quote by Krishnamurti that has been like a guide for me in terms of understanding this ability to do the best I can or the best we can, uh, to, to really try to be careful to not measure or judge where we are, you know, and just take each moment as this gift, something to be grateful for, to learn from, and just to try to be with, you know, whether it's really strong craving or jealousy or a moment of gratitude, you know, or the beautiful colors, you know, and then the sadness. It's like to just really relate to each moment as something to fully awaken to. And if we get lost, we get lost. And to trust that a seed of mindfulness is going to sprout at some time because we have such a deep aspiration to be free. It's really trusting that aspiration and then letting go of control. So this is just... It's about letting things be just as they are. He said, to be actually sensitive, not about something, but just to be sensitive, to be vulnerable, like that new spring leaf, which was born a few days ago, to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. Fully present, open, vulnerable, but not lost in what's happening. You know, this takes great tenderness, courage, to be actually sensitive, not about something, but just to be sensitive to be vulnerable, like that new spring leaf which was born a few days ago, to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. Let's sit for a minute. All we can do is be where we are, to be where we are, to be where we are. That's where we get liberated. <laughs> 